I'm Supak Kienitz, and I had the pleasure to be in front of Jim Bear Jacobs and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker, sharing their personal stories of racial discrimination and the work of helping to heal communities from historic trauma and racial discrimination happening today. Jim Bear believes when stories are passed down and told, then healing can take place. And of course, this is what's happening in this podcast. I feel it's important to share my experience when it happened to me, following the conversation and recording with Jim Bear and Shonda that happened several weeks back. On the day of recording, and as I'm listening to Jim Bear and Shonda discuss their stories, I begin to sob at length into the depths of my entire body. Little did I know the storytelling I was listening to was bringing up my own as an Asian American woman who identifies as LGBTQ. In the following days, I went into a frantic and restless mode as if the energy from my body could not sit still and I recognized how sick I became. I realized the start of my restlessness and frantic mode came from this conversation I was witness to with Jim Bear and Shonda. These stories are powerful. So I want to reiterate the work Shonda and Jim Bear is doing that is so proximate, so close to where the foundation of the disparity is coming from and their understanding of pain, grievance, and hurt the community and themselves are facing. It has been a revelation to me and is making me go down a path of healing so I can have a voice like what I am doing now and be able to articulate my own behavior and actions that are caused by racial and gender discrimination and notice the injustice in our current systems. Not only do I admire Jim Bear and Chandra's work, but I admire them as a human and bringing their brilliance and compassion for the greater good. On behalf of the people who you have inspired, and on behalf of the Minneapolis Foundation, thank you to Jim Bear Jacobs and Shonda Smith-Baker. So the first time that um, I remember meeting you, and by the way, you know my sister. Who's that? Shannon Smith-Jones. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. My only sibling, mm-hmm. my baby sister. So, yeah, you know her. Yeah, she and I have done uh, a couple of things throughout the years together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a big fan of yours. But we met really through the, the, the Council of Churches philanthropy's role in hate when we bought Dr. Sekou in and we went to dinner. And mm-hmm. I was really fascinated sort of with your grasp of history. I could have literally sat there at that dinner all night. Yeah, well, especially with with uh, Seku, man, he's a the man just knows everything, you know. <laughs> and, like and everything and every language. Everyone, like, yeah. How did that philanthropy's role in countering hate sort of come to be? Yeah. So you know our CEO, Dr. Curtis DeYoung. And I say RCO, that's at the Council of Churches here. Um, uh, that's a partnership with the Council of Churches and Imam, Imam, why is his name? Um, Assad. Uh, yeah, Imam Assad. And that was really kind of a call to engage the philanthropic community and really 
hope to spark a conversation that uh, kind of examined how philanthropy is is carried out and with the goal of of eventually really getting creative in how philanthropic organizations uh, who they fund and and what they fund and and when we're we're dealing with something like the you know we call it um, encountering hate you know that's that's not a, a a tangible thing right that's that's not very easily measured and so traditionally things like philanthropic organizations like to fund things that are easily measured where they can see a good kind of return on investment on that and that gets difficult when you're dealing with these deep systemic problems and so we we wanted to to bring some of the philanthropic organizations together really just sit them at a table listen to some speakers and just hear some story and kind of the challenge of that being you know how can we creatively how can we come together and creatively work towards solving uh this problem for the future and so i believe the one where we brought in dr seiko i think that was our second annual the first one i didn't attend um fully we we did sponsor both of them at the minneapolis foundation but i do remember the first one and uh the african-american woman from south carolina mm -hmm. I mean, I think I, I was moved to tears and then like had to run to like another meeting, right? Like it just like brought out all of this stuff and she had been impacted. I think she had a family member that was impacted by the Charleston um, shooting. Yeah, the, the Charleston shooting. And then we also had, I, I can't remember if it was a rabbi or just- uh, There was a rabbi. Yeah, uh, from the Tree of Life yep. shooting, yeah. Yeah. So you just touched on something that I think is is interesting. And I, I guess two things that I thought, one is sort of the foresight of what's philanthropy's role in hate, why we were moving into a time, at least in my lifetime, where I haven't seen so much hate displayed. Mm -hmm. And and so there's sort of this foresight, perhaps, on that aspect, or at least laying the foundation and very um, interested in knowing whether or not you have seen philanthropy change how it's thinking about that work as a result of those convenings. Um, I, I think it would be, I, I have noticed philanthropy kind of changing strategy a little bit. I don't know if, if I would, do a direct tie into our events. I think, you know, I think the call, sort of the generalized uh, raising of consciousness was certainly over the last four years, uh, but even to a lesser extent, probably over the last decade, um, has has warranted a change in strategy, a re-examination of strategy and looking forward. And also not just for philanthropy, but for any organization that wants to make change in the world, an examination of our own history and, and how we have helped perpetuate these systems in which hate gets embedded in. You know, so you know philanthropy, you know, when, when you talk about philanthropy, a lot of times you're talking about generational wealth. And that that warrants a deep examination of, of how that generational wealth came to be. And 
and really at whose cost. And um, so we, we, you know, we're seeing that, I mean, certainly all good philanthropic organizations are, are um, adopting like DEI uh, policies and statements and things like that. I mean, you would have a better insight into this, but to, as an outside observer, it seems like all of this is kind of happening in, in about the last 10 years. Um, this more, uh, th this examination of, of the internal institutional structures mm -hmm. and also um, uh, projecting to the future how to, how, to, how to help be about the solution. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that DEI efforts can both be good and harmful. Right. I mean, there's definitely a collective pressure to do things, say things, um, make statements. There's 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 pressure. Right. So there's a performative aspect to it. But I have been seeing people that are organizing. Um, and examining both their history, their strategies, their processes um and getting in closer relationship with the work and the people whom they're working to impact i definitely think that is true and yeah. i think that it's 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 public pressure i think that there have been really painful moments like floyd and like what happened at the capitol on on one six and you know all of these things that I think are leading to us saying clearly we need to do more and we need to understand more. And I think I think that's right. Yeah, um, you know, it just seems like the 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 atmosphere that surrounds us, whether it's political, um, institutional. Um, you know, when I when I was coming up in, you know, through through college and graduate studies, kind of the what what I was sort of acclimatized into was that we were probably in a post-racist society, but we were not in a post-racial society. Um, you know, we were in a society where the overt acts of racism were not necessarily an everyday um, occurrence, but that uh, clearly there was still a racialized aspect of society. And I think now, um, with, you know, particularly in the last four years, I, I don't even think I could confidently say we're in a post-racist society. I, it, it just, there's, and, and you know, I say that not like it, it caught me off guard or anything, you know, as an indigenous man, I've, you know, had my fair share of, of those overt comments, but um, I, I think what did surprise me is the freedom that those entrenched racists felt to be very out and vocal with it. You know, they, they felt a safety um, because, you know, I mean, their ide ideologies were espoused from the top position of leadership. And Yeah. Yeah. For, for folks that are listening that maybe don't see the distinction between the two, could you provide the distinction between? Between being um sort of how did you say racist and racism uh well, what i was referring to is um a post-racist society um versus a post-racialized society so and, and i forget 
where I came across this this information or, or you know who was who wrote about it. this is not my my um, research or ideology or, or it's not my ideas but um, you know the the Jim you know the Jim Crow era would be a racist society and to then you you move in you shift into um, say like for example someone with with your name Chanda you know in the tw late 20th century applying for for employment positions right no one's going to come out and explicitly tell you you're not getting this job because you're black but you know that your name that that name Chanda on your job application is going to put you in a pile of less desirable candidates right so there's still that racialized yeah. aspect uh, in society Sure. So I know um, Robin D'Angelo does talk a little bit about this, is that we have sometimes some in our minds, we have said, well, certainly I can't be part of racism because racism looks like a cross burning on on the on the lawn. Right. It looks mm -hmm. like people yelling the N word or yelling words at at communities and being overt and obvious and, and dangerous towards a group of people. It certainly can't be the policies and the practices that I'm living under and supporting that um, would make me uh, a racist or part of a racist system. And I think that I think people do conflate those those things, right? Being a racist and living um, and, and operating under a racist system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think what we're seeing more recently with with folks like. Robin D'Angelo and Jim Wallace, Tim Wise, um, you know, the, these uh, researchers from the insider perspective of whiteness is, is we're really seeing a calling out of this construct of whiteness, right? Um, that whiteness itself is a system uh, that has been, been constructed and, and as long as the system is constructed uh, and it privileges whiteness, um, then there will always be a racialized aspect to, to the institutions and systems that are in place underneath that. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned when I said, you know, there were kind of two ways that I was thinking about things. The other way was around this idea of making investments, philanthropy making investments and things that can't be measured within six months. Mm -hmm. And we did move really far as a sector into sort of impact reporting, ROI, return on investment, um, which has always been a really interesting thing of, you know, me being from the neighborhood, like what is someone's ROI on me <laughs> and my kids or whatever, right? Like, how do you really quantify? And the way that um, I moved through the world and seeing and working in community and understanding that a lot of times the, the best money spent is actually on people that really love and respect a community that wants to work within it, work for it, work uh, on behalf of, and that show up in the unexpected times when the need is there. Um, that could really guide a young person out of trouble or really be there for a family that it doesn't sort of organize from nine to five in some of the structures that we have created 
Um, and so it's those intangible things that I think are priceless that are very hard to both um, articulate and measure. And so can you just talk about sort of the, the lack of investment or your thoughts in terms of like sort of the reporting climate that we're in? Yeah, it's, you know, so most of my, most of my work for the last decade has been kind of invested in bringing forth to light uh, the indigenous story, uh, particularly here in Minnesota. And so, you know, just, just a little background. I started an organization back in 2011 called Healing Minnesota Stories with the, it's, our, our goal is, is just what I stated to kind of illuminate indigenous story and indigenous history here in Minnesota uh, with the, the belief, uh, and this is kind of an in indigenous worldview that uh, when our stories are passed on and told, then, then healing can take place and particularly around historic trauma. And so when I started doing this, you know, we, we created things like sacred sites tours, um, speakers bureaus, uh, working on getting into pretty much every college and university uh, in certainly in the Twin Cities and most of the prominent and historic uh, faith communities in the Twin Cities. And, uh, just to understand, uh, I before I took my job here at the Council of Churches uh, two and a half years ago, I spent the last twenty five years of my life working in trades and you know as a blue collar worker. So I had no idea um, about the philanthropic world. Right, that's a whole another world that I was unfamiliar with. Um, but we would go. Uh, I, but I was connected to people who were, uh, who knew that world and that, and they would encourage me and Healing Minnesota Stories to kind of uh, apply for some small grants from the philanthropic world. And we, we tried a couple of times and, and granted, you know, this is just from my experience, but it was very difficult to get, you know, to get any kind of funding around things like telling stories to raise awareness, unless you know we were specifically seeking funding for a specific event where we could mark the number of people who would be in attendance. Uh, you know, we could take a survey of all of this. Um, but having said that, you know, I've been doing these sacred sites tours, which is one of our main drivers at. Healing Minnesota Stories. I've been doing them now since 2011. And every single year, there's more and more interest. So there's a transformation, like there's there's impact uh, within the community uh, for this. And so we see, like we see that there's impact, there's interest generated. And but more importantly, like me as a storyteller with that crowd, that group in front of me in some of these sacred sites telling that story um what, what i measure success in is is not that you know we're growing and we we continue to have more people but what i what i really 
thrive off of is when I'm telling the story and maybe someone has lived in the Twin Cities for, you know, 60, 70 years, and they've never heard the story of this particular place right beneath their feet. And I watch that moment of recognition, right? It's like a spark that, um, that happens, but that's not measurable, right? And that's like, like, how do you, how do you, how do you explain return on investment on things like sparks of consciousness? <laughs> uh, yeah, let me know, because I mean, I think that there are times, even with the podcast, right, there was a big discussion around, I mean, aren't we doing enough talking? Like, how do you measure the impact? For what purpose, right? And I'm like, I mean, there's there there's talking and there's discovery, and then there's talking about the right things outside of maybe the way that you've understood it, that creates a little bit of discomfort or new awareness that I think is absolutely transformational. And I've gotten some wonderful feedback on, oh my God, that conversation had me think about this in a completely new way. I had no idea. And I think that is where the magic is. Yeah, I was gonna say, you, you know, I mean, my my experience early on in Healing Minnesota Stories is, is one experience, but I have been very encouraged with the philanthropic uh, community uh, so I, I'm, I mean, I know you're aware at, at the council here, we have this, this program that we just, uh, acted in, and adopted at the close of 2020 around truth and reparations. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a brand new program and from what we can tell, uh, it's pretty cutting edge for a statewide ecumenical agency to say, okay, we really need to talk about the systematized racism within our own denominations, within our membership community. And we need to talk, have very serious conversations and we need to have action on reparations and, and what that looks like. And um, we have gotten a lot of positive feedback and investment from philanthropic communities for this program. And, uh, I think maybe 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 it's twofold, right? The fact that it is pretty cutting edge and new, but also I think it's reflective of the internal work that philanthropic agencies have been have been doing to to say, yeah, you know, there is a way to, or there must be a way, or we can help finance and create the way forward towards repair and healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I imagine part of the healing story work is really more centered in the truth mm -hmm. or is it also centered in the repair aspect of, or both you mean the the work that i've been doing yeah. yeah it's been more centered in in the in the truth telling um yeah it's it's uh it's getting those voices out there right and um getting those stories out of the shadows and so that's that's been where most of our work has has been focused on but that i mean not exclusively to that we have had events where we will bring in indigenous organizations that are doing the work of healing and repair things like language and cultural reclamation projects um, food sovereignty land reclamation you know we brought in some of these projects and and had these moments where we'll tell our largely white audience, you know, okay, this is the damage 
that was done in the founding of the history of Minnesota. This is how that impact lives today in indigenous bodies in Minnesota. And this is how you can be about the work of repair. So get out your checkbook, clear your calendar for some volunteer hours. Um, but this is, you know, and, and it, it's not a suggestion, right? Because we're dealing with faith communities, we can kind of lean on their own internal mandate of the gospel to be about the work of repair and say, this is what you are called by your sacred scriptures, by your doctrine to do. And this is what that looks like. Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about the sacred sites tour through the, the narrative of my sister who has been on one of the tours. Um, I know Fort Snelling is one of those places and I've recently come into my own awareness on some of the history at Fort Snelling. Um, I don't know if I would uh, steal the thunder or whatever the saying is, if, if I asked you to share a little bit on that, but would you mind saying a little bit about maybe the history of one of the sites? Yeah, so one of the sites we, we primarily focus on, as you mentioned, is Fort Snelling and we don't actually visit the fort itself um, mainly because it's such a big touristy spot up there. And, you know, if you grew up in Minnesota, you've been to Fort Snelling as a, as a school-aged child. Uh, but we actually go down into the valley right below the fort, where the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River come together. And the indigenous story that's held there in the Dakota language, that area is known as Bedote. Uh, which is where like the city of Mendota Heights gets its its name, derives its name from. But that that area there is so rich with story, not just from an indigenous perspective and the trauma visited there, but also from the African-American perspective. There it's, you know, you have those two rivers that intersect, but there is a, a deep intersection of black and native story that intersect there. Uh, but the history that's held there is for the Dakota people, it's the site of creation, right? So to use Judeo-Christian analogies, this is the Garden of Eden. It's the place of first creation. But also following the war, the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, this was the site of a concentration camp where roughly 1,700 Dakota elders, women, and children were imprisoned, uh, kept in a stockade fence there in that valley for the winter of 1862 to 1863. And, you know, it's a site of deep historic trauma. The conditions were so bad there that um, they were, about three to four people were dying every single day, three to four Dakota people. So in that period of about five months, uh, they lost about 300 people. And from there, they were ultimately exiled out of the state of Minnesota. So in the spring of 63, they were loaded onto cattle barges at the river there, and they were sent down the river uh, to St. Louis, where they caught the Missouri River and went up the Missouri and were kind of offloaded into this prisoner of war camp in the middle of South Dakota. Uh, and the conditions were so bad that that winter, not only did they lose 300 people during that winter, but they lost an additional 300 after they were exiled from disease and trauma that that were faced while they were there. And what's what's interesting is, you know, I talk about the intersection of, of, of Black narrative and Native narrative right there. That same spring, as the Dakota people are being exiled 
on cattle barges down the river, the very first um, raft, because it wasn't really a barge, but the very first raft uh, was coming up the river that had 75 eman newly emancipated uh, slaves that were, and they, I mean, they must have, John, they must have crossed each other because the nearest I can get um, in in the the research I've done is is it was I mean it was not a matter of months it was a matter of weeks if not days from the the one barge you know the barges taking the the Dakota people out to this this first wave of the first seventy five people uh, emancipated slaves coming up into Minnesota you know and I mean beyond that right Fort Snelling has a history of of slavery. Uh, being enforced at Fort Snelling, the famous Dred, Dred and Harriet Scott case that was all precipitated around Fort Snelling. And, you know, it wasn't widespread slavery being, being, being utilized here in Minnesota, but because Minnesota was not yet a state and the fort itself was federal land, then you had these Southern officers who would, um, who, who would be stationed at the fort and they were given an amount of money to basically to, to pay for their servants. Well, if they're, you know, if they're slave owners and you don't have to pay for your servants, that's just extra money in your pocket. So, yeah, the, I mean, the United States military incentivized the, the use of slavery, even in free northern territories uh, back then. I have so much in my head about this story, and most of it feels very, very personal. Um, so first, I was thinking that um, I have a couple of stories. One, my mom tells me when I was on the playground, and um, there was a little white girl that was playing and her mother, and the little girl came up and um, called me the N-word, and she said, I just looked like... I had was so offended and I came to her and just like stood in front of her. And my mom used to say to me, like, I didn't even know you knew what it was. I don't even know if you knew the word, but you knew that it wasn't right. And mm. you just, just came and looked at me like I like I've just been assaulted in some way. And my mom trying to navigate my three year old self around that. Right. Like no memory whatsoever. The next time I remember call, being called an N-word was actually in the bathroom at Fort Snelling. Wow. I went in there and this older white woman said, I don't use bathrooms with, with, with N-words. What, what age would you have been there? I would have been in my 20s. Wow. And I was in a training there. I don't even remember anything else about that experience, but I remember going in the bathroom and I was, I was washing my hands or, or something like that, but I remember not saying anything, mm. right? Like I remember looking at her and if I did say anything, Jimberry was like, what did you just say? Cause I couldn't believe that she said it. And I remember just, um, going and not being able to be in the rest of my day, like being excited about being whatever I was invited to, but sitting in that for the rest of the day, like I can't believe I just encountered that and actually spent time thinking, what other word could she have said? Maybe I misheard her. Oh, so you were trying to rationalize 
the offense out of right okay isn't that funny how we do that right sometimes because i i do that too right when someone will just say something overtly racist and i'll just i don't it, it's i don't know i don't know if it's just me but it sounds like it was you in this instance you're trying to give the benefit of the, the doubt to white people that, and, and she deserved no benefit of the doubt. No. I mean, it was so clear and it, it stuck with me and it, it bothered me for so long and it comes up every now and then because it was just so, she was just so sweet. Just a sweet little old white lady, just mm-hmm. like having bathrooms with you, you know? And I'm just like, wow, wow. Another quick story that, and then I'll tell you the other sort of thing I was thinking about was um, my kids were going to uh, Harvest Prep, and this is one of my favorite stories to tell, but it's, it's, there's a lot in this, and they were learning about civil rights and Jim Crow, and uh, we went to the restroom, they need to use the restroom, and we were at Target out in one of the outer suburbs, and um, my, my son comes, they, I, you know, go in the bathroom, you guys, I'll be right out here. And um, they came running out and they're like, it's for whites only. And I'm like, what? And they're like, it's, it's a white only bathroom. There's no people, of, you know, there's no black people in there. And so they were learning about Jim Crow and uh-huh. they're young. They're like first grade, third grade. They weren't able to separate in their mind what was from what is okay. and so they're like I don't belong in there like I'm in danger and they come flying out and I'm just like what is happening <laughs> you know like what are you talking about no you were completely safe going in there and I guess it's it's you know when you talk about trauma that lives in the in the body or a telling of of history in these episodic ways that don't provide the right context mm-hmm Right, like the way that it could manifest itself in 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 very harmful ways. Um, and at the time, I mean, I tell it now, kind of like I can't believe that happened because it was a little bit funny, but it wasn't really funny. Um, and I really did have to manage my sons around that. Mm. Wow. Yeah, um, it's funny how sometimes you know the mundane. Uh, things, sort of the everyday, uh, shows us where the trauma resides, um, right? And um, I mean, this was this, this was not so mundane, but a few years ago, I was doing one of these tours, and uh, we were we were at Pedote, we were below the fort, and at the time, my partner that I did the tours with was. Uh, a gentleman named Bob, who's a Dakota man, uh, 60, 67 years old, and just a very dear, dear friend of mine. And uh, we we did these tours together. And we're, we're, I'm, we're down there, we got a group of 30 some people, I believe they were all graduate students at the U of M in uh, like the Department of Public Health or something. Anyway, we're doing the the tour and I'm telling the story of like the the trauma that's held in the land and we hear this shout from on top of the bluff which is where the fort is situated we hear this shout uh I I didn't really pay attention to it because it was off in the distance but then we heard it I heard it coming closer and closer and 
you know, I'm, I'm the storyteller at, at this point in the tour and I'm kind of focusing on my story, trying not to get distracted. And as I'm right in like the deepest part of the trauma uh, of the story, the, the U.S. Marine Corps starts jogging, marching, uh, literally 20 feet from us on this bike path, uh, going, going up, and, and it was probably 300 of them. And they, you know, they, they were just running drills, right? It's part of their training and that. Uh, but they run up and, you know, it was, um, and I should say, it, it looked to be like, a, like an ROTC program or something, because a lot of them were were young kids, but so there's probably like 300 students or young kids and probably 30, you know, adults, uh, Marines in, you know, in their battle fatigues. And they're all like, even the kids are carrying, um, I'm, I'm assuming they're not real like M16s, but they're, you know, they got their field pack in that. And like, I just, I had to stop. I had to stop telling the story and everyone in the group I could just feel this collective tension rising as we're talking about trauma uh, visited on indigenous people by the United States military. And now the US military is showing their force in this space, like this space where indigenous people died, indigenous people were buried in the ground there. Uh, and, and you know, you all think it's it's appropriate for you to run your your like this is a memorial. Like there's signage, there's there's a structure indicating that this is a memorial, and you think it's okay to run your your military drills here. And um, and you know, and and I I actually called the the Marines afterwards about two weeks later. Gave myself some time to cool. <laughs> called them about two weeks later, and what struck me was the like. I, and I ended up talking with the sergeant who was running those drills that day. What struck me is he knew what this space was for indigenous people, but he was so utterly amazed that any indigenous person would take offense at the running of these drills. Um, and I was just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Like just the, that audacity, because it's not even ignorance at that, at that moment, right? It's not even ignorance. It's just a, I don't even know what you would call that. It's it's just this sheer audacity. Um, Can we just talk about that for a second? Because there, there are moments, like the psychological safety, right? Like you were, um, you're talking about trauma and then you are intentional about reaching out to just talk about what that traumatic experience was like and, and sort of the sanctity of life and history and the memorial and just respect and just trying to provide perspective to be further traumatized by response. And I mm. watched this cycle that happens a lot where we, we're trying to break through or people are trying to break through where we need to have breakthroughs in terms of our understanding of history and how we honor each other in our histories. And that is dangerous work, right? It, it's, it's, it's emotionally dangerous, psychologically dangerous. And I don't think that um, people uh, broadly understand those risks that are being taken every day in small and big ways. Yeah, I would say 
Uh, one caveat to which I would say that generally white people are not aware of that. I think, I think black people, I think indigenous people, I think other people of color are aware, are mostly aware of that cost, right? But it's, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's amazing. I, you know, I, um, it, it, it's funny how it shows up. So my, my wife uh, is, is a very wonderful white woman, right? And, um, you know, and as I said, I've been doing this work um, for 10 years, a little more than 10 years. And I remember one day uh, I was home, but I had to leave because I had an event I had to go speak at, right? And uh, so I was getting ready to, to go saying goodbye to my wife, you know, gave her a kiss and all that. And, and she was like, she was, she was, she was mocking being upset, right? She's saying, Oh, I'll stay here with the kids and you go off and have your fun. You know, she wasn't really that upset, you know, but she was just making fun of that situation. Right. And I was so surprised at my response because I, I didn't have any animosity towards her and I didn't, I didn't feel attacked or anything. Right. But I just like, my response was, do you understand that I'm about to go and talk about racism and historic trauma for the next three hours? And this is personal to me. Like there's nothing about this that is fun. I don't enjoy that I have to do this. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because like my wife just kind of went like, whoa, like, like she knew, she knows that, right? She sees me when I come home and I'm just drained and exhausted and I don't want to talk to anyone, right? She knows that it takes a toll. And granted, my response to her was disproportionate to the little joke she made. But I was more surprised at my own response because I know that she's aware, like she's conscious of all of these things. But I think it was just one of those moments where like you, your body reminds you there is a cost to this, right? Your your consciousness reminds you that there is a cost to this. And um, and it is like, there's, I mean, I, I know you experience it too. You know, you might be presenting at an event or talking to certain people or a group and you just come away and you're like, you, you feel a trauma response in your body. And yes. Yeah. And I know I brought my kids in and you brought your family in and um, you know, here we are adults that have experienced a lot and still find ourselves reacting and being triggered. Um, and thankfully, you know, most of us know how to navigate the triggering in our employment um, environments, right? And mm -hmm. other environments that we're in and that there's a level of resolve on, on who we are and what maybe our purpose and our roles are. But I do think about our young people that are also holding trauma in their bodies and responding and the responses are not healing. Mm. They're not aware of um, the trauma that our young people are experiencing. Yeah. So my, my oldest daughter is 14 years old. And um, when she was, when she was in the fourth grade, uh, one of the projects that they had to do in school was just kind of a basic um, research Native American culture um, and do a little presentation, right? And so naturally, me being her dad, I'm like, okay, we're going to knock this one out of the park, right? So we, I mean, we brought in family artifacts and 
you know, um, just just like put together a killer presentation. And her teacher afterwards called us, called my wife and said that my daughter's presentation was so good. And without even knowing it, it actually, um, it, it taught on all of the benchmarks criteria that is required for that lesson. And so the teacher said, I would like her to do this, not just for our class, but all the fourth grade. And then so she came back and did it for the other classes in fourth grade. And then she did it the next year. You know, she moved on to fifth grade, but came back to the fourth grade, did it. And on the third year, she was invited back. You know, and this is something she she always looked forward to, you know. Uh, the third day or third the third year when she came back, um, when she, to to do the presentation, um, you know, I was excited for her because she was excited about it. And uh, when I got home that day, uh, you know, I went to her and I just wanted to do a check in, say, "Hey, how'd your presentation go? How you feel it went?" And her face was just down, and she was upset. And I said, "Well, what?" what happened? Like you, you really like doing this and she didn't want to talk about, it. she didn't want to talk about it. And finally I, I let her have some time and then came back to it later in the evening. And I said, so tell me what happened today. And she just kind of started crying. And she said, the, the kids asked me why we were so mean and scalped people all the time. And I was just like, I was like, you know, as a father, I'm like, Okay, we're gonna do some educating here. You know, do that, but I'm like, I can't protect her from this. You know, everything about me wants to protect her and shield her from this. And so we just had like we had a very frank conversation about if this is something you want to do, you want to be a spokesperson, you want to be, you know, like your dad, you want to do this. Unfortunately, this is this is some of the ignorance you're gonna face, and it hurts and you know, to the people who are asking those questions, they're trying to be funny, they're trying to be cute, and maybe they don't know, you know, right? Here, here I go again, right? Giving the benefit yeah. of the doubt, but no, these, are, these are kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I mean, there's just so many stories that we can tell, right? And I, I think about, you know, even a time, and, and so the other story that I was thinking about when you were telling before Snelling is like the African-American folks coming here and the native folks going to South Dakota. And I have a Lakota lineage in my family. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm thinking as you're saying it, that's how my people met. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know my history well enough to know. So I have to like fill in holes and imagine what it's like because it's so difficult to trace. And um, and it's always was like a very sad thing for my mom to not really kind of have sort of an understanding of her complete background and history and lineage, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I went, so there's two things. One is the, the things that happen in schools where they're like, you know, go back and chase your, trace your genealogy and like tell us when your grandparents or great grandparents arrived in this country. And then my kids and I'm like trying to get their assignment done and these teachers are like creating trauma in my house because don't they know how African-American people arrived in this country? Um, don't right. you know, like there, there's slave books that have birth dates on it with no names. Like it's, it's very difficult to trace and I'm trying to manage so they get a good grade. 
on an assignment that I think is abusive and, you know, trying to navigate this space. So now fast forward, I'm an adult. I, I'm at a, a board meeting somewhere and we start out and the people go around and they said, well, we want to just open up the meeting. We want everyone to talk about um, their history, their, their family history and, and tell us a story about your arrival to this country. And um, by the way, they decided to burn sage like as a thing, right? So they're burning uh -huh. sage and they're talking about these practices and I don't think they should be doing that either. But they did that and I start crying. And like, I think it was all this stress and I'm like, I'm listening to all these stories and by the eighth one, it's me and I cannot stop crying. And I'm just like, what is happening to me right now? I'm not a crier. I'm literally in a board meeting, just like, and I'm like, I pass. I just freaking pass. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going back to my hotel and I'm done with this whole thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm done with the damn day. That's where I'm at. Mm. And I'm like, what? And, and it's just, you know, we're in a moment where a lot of this stuff is bubbling up, bubbling up in our communities. I think the, the understanding, the misunderstanding, the, the doubling down on, on who we are, what we're trying to protect is, is a very real thing. And it feels very threatening um, in a number of ways. And, and here we are in a city where we're getting ready to go into the Floyd trial. Uh -huh. And I'm thinking about all the bubbling up and all of the things that could be said and misunderstood and thinking about what, what, is, what is my role in my house, in my community, in my job you know, to, to think through whatever, whatever leadership I have available, how do I contribute to healing and repair during a time that clearly needs it? Oh. Have you been thinking at all about the season that we're living in? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, the very fact that I know that the trial starts on March 8th, Right. I have never in my life consciously known when any trial starts ever. Right. Um, and the fact that, like, I don't even have to have it written down. I just know March 8th, uh, that's when the trial starts. And, you know, I've been thinking, so there's, you know, I, I do a lot of work and, and, and am connected with a number of community organizers and sort of the feeling that I'm feeling from kind of the, the collective group of community organizers in that is we need to be, we need to plan to be ahead of this for damage mitigation, trauma mitigation. And so I just got out of a meeting yesterday with a, a friend of mine, a black woman uh, pastor, and you know she's inviting me in to be part of this this planning for I don't even know what to call it. Not really a memorial, but just just like an event, maybe a vigil would be a way to put it. To run the whole day uh, at George Floyd Square on on the first day of the trial, and 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 it just feels like like. I don't know, it just feels like, like, you know, it's coming, right? You can see the waves building offshore and you know, it's coming. You don't know how bad it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to, the damage is going to do, but you know, 
that something is is going to happen and so um yeah we're just trying to be part of part of a work that says um i don't even know if you call it healing at this point right it's 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 too early in the game to call it healing at this point it's like we're just trying to minimize damage we're just trying to minimize hurt and um yeah and what's um, that to me is when you talk to folks and you're like what do you expect it's like i don't expect anything i don't expect justice mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like there's a community that believes in the system and there's communities that don't believe justice will ever happen and those are the realities and i think the work of like trying to close that yeah you know, and I think I think those that believe in the system are the ones who have benefited from the system historically, right? Um, I I haven't talked to one black person that uh, has any confidence that Chauvin will be found guilty, right? Um, or he'll be found guilty in the way that Breonna Taylor's, yeah, or, right, like for the bullet, yeah. Going yeah, you're guilty for shooting a wall, but not a person. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and um, and you know, and and I think I think we we even talked about this um, when we sat down together with with Dr. Glaude. You know, the, this idea that the line we get fed all the time to trust the system, um, to trust the process, like. There has never been a system or a process created or imagined in which we can inherently trust. Uh, they are not, and and so this appeal to to you know trust the legal system. There has never been anything demonstrated that says that we can. Um, yeah. Do you think that the system can be reformed? I used to. Mm. I used to. I used to be much more optimistic about it. I I don't know. Uh, this is just me being honest. I I fluctuate back and forth between there is possibility of some hardcore reform from that perspective, and to just tear it down and start something new, um, create something new. Um, I have been in the create something new and then I'm like, and then where would they hire the people? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Who would show up but the same people that um, either have the interest and who are the pool? Um, and I think it's it's just a really complicated time. Um I don't know. I know one of the other things that we touched on and something else that's um, you know, we were talking about sacred sites. I think we talked about um land acknowledgments. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some there's sometimes that I think it is presented in a way that really allows me to hear the words and understand um, the purpose of that acknowledgement. And then there's times that it feels like it's an agenda item. And I really like wrestle, right? And if I'm being 100% honest, I would say yes. And then, you know, there's like the land acknowledgement and then acknowledgement of the free labor that built the stuff that was on it, right? Like all of this stuff, right? That I'm going through in my African-American body, my black body, right? 
Mm-hmm. Are you, um, do you think that land acknowledgement is a sign of progress and hope? Uh, so I have consulted on a number of land acknowledgements and I will only consult with organizations that I trust are actually using this not as a culmination of their their racial consciousness work, but as a starting point, right? Because, you know, a land acknowledgement is like the very minimum that you can do, right? It's, it's, um, it's one step up from doing nothing. Um, so what I, when I consult on land acknowledgements, I, I say a, a responsible land acknowledgement needs to include three things. Um, it needs to be specific. So in other words, it's not enough to say we recognize that this was Indian land. You have to specifically name the tribes. Um, and if you can do the research, name the villages of the people. Um, be specific in naming treaties that were violated that allowed you to be in possession of the land. So it needs to be specific. Uh, number two, it needs to be contemporary. You can't speak of native people in past terms, right? You have to bring them into the 21st century. Um, so um, bring them into the 21st century. Where are those people now? Uh, what are the conditions which cause them to not be here now, um, to be displaced and dislocated? Or if they're not, you know, if they're no longer exist, um, you know, name that genocidal practice, name that, mourn that. Uh, and then number three, and I think this is most important, it needs to recognize your institution's complicity in the building of this structure, and it needs a commitment to undoing the harms. Uh, and I say, if it doesn't have, if it doesn't have those three things, then it's not, it, it, it's not a, you know, it's not something that I would put my stamp of approval on. Like you have to, you have to name a commitment to being about the work of repair. So we have that. And then um, I've been engaged in a conversation about the use of BIPOC. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked a little bit about that too. I was in the most hilarious conversation the other day where this older woman uh, that I know um, and just love dearly. And she's like, I really thought it was about bisexual people of color. I didn't really know <laughs> I was a BIPOC. And I'm just yeah. like, What's, what are we talking about right now? But I'm like, these new terms keep coming up. And I think we talked about that too, because I react in a not positive way when I hear that language. Uh Um, And, but I'm also sensitive that when you say people of color, it doesn't acknowledge the indigenous communities. And so I'm really kind of exploring. I have my own sort of biological reaction when I hear it. And it doesn't like, my body does not like the language, but how do you respond to that? Um, I've come to accept it as, as, you know, just a shorthand. Um, but, um, you know, I always say, and, and this kind of comes up to the age old question, which I know is, um, has been the same for, uh, for African American communities as well. But the question, you know, is, well, what do we call you, right? You know, is black appropriate, you know, Negroes out of fashion now, you know, African American, um, you know, a, you know, ADOS is now um, coming into fashion. And, and we in the Native community have faced that as well. You know, American Indian, Indian, 
indigenous peoples, Native American. Um, and so I always, I don't have a shorthand answer for, for the black community, but for the indigenous community, um, I say, be as specific as you can. So if you don't know if you should call me a Native American or American Indian, um, my tribe is the Mohican Nation. I'm Mohican. You're not going to get in any trouble if you say, hey, I was talking to Jim Bear Jacobs the other day, who's a Mohican. You know, like, like that's, that's my identity. Um, and, and I think in that, and so like when people ask, you know, I, I get asked, you know, for uh, people are writing, you know, term papers and stuff for college. And they're like, you know, how do I reference you? And I, I say, you, you write out my name and you put parentheses, Mohican Nation, and that's all you have to do. And then you don't have to mess with the, the weird political terminology because it does get, you know, it gets messy. You know, John Trudell, who was a Lakota poet and activist, and he said, you all have difficulty with like American Indian and Native American and all of these because we are older than the institution of America itself. We, we don't fit into your, your political definitions because we're older than politics. And so, um, yeah, I mean, BIPOC, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I remember when I first started seeing it and I was like, oh, what is this, you know? And um, um, now it, it's just kind of become a shorthand. I, I don't have a strong reaction, but I know that that some people do. Uh, and uh, and now, now with the term, you know, the, the ADOS term, American Descendants of Slavery. And then I even recently came across the ADOCS, which is American Descendants of Chattel Slavery, which I don't really know why the distinction is necessary, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a strong reaction. I'm curious though, like, like you said, you, you, you have a reaction. What do you think that's where that's from? No, I, I really honestly don't know. I think it's that there's, maybe it's the politicized way. I think that it's grouping everyone together. Yeah. Right. And that there's no way that you like the strategies to support communities are not the same. The histories are not the same. Um, and I, I think that there's something around that that I'm reacting to. Um, I think, you know, sort of combating anti-Blackness. I think that there's other ways for people to be explicit, it's starting to feel, again, to me, just sort of a shorthanded way for people to feel like they are aware, woke, on top of it, like, you know, paying attention to things. And so you can go into a meeting and you can do your pronouns, your land acknowledgement and work with BIPOCs and then just be on the journey. And I just, like, I guess if I see the work underneath it, because I understand, I don't know if I understand or if I'm excusing the shorthanded nature of it. 
And maybe it's, you know, I, I honestly had the same reaction as a North Sider when people started saying, are you from Nomi? And I'm like, what the hell is Nomi? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. who did this? Like, you know, my family's been here for five generations. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the hell a Nomi is. And here we are marketing uh, a community that has history. Why are we, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like, where where do we preserve history? And why, why do we get a new name every five years or whatever? Yeah. So I, I don't know what it is. And I think I have to unpack it myself. But, you know, there's just a lot of reaction. You know, I prefer that if we're writing it, you know, and we use it and we're part of, we're part of an ecosystem and we move when it moves. But I'm like, you know, for, for folks around me, if you're going to use it, just spell it out. Mm-hmm. Right. And and don't use BIPOC as an acronym, but spell out, like give at least acknowledgement of writing it out. Yeah. No, I, I can definitely see that. And it's funny you bring up Nomi. I, I remember when I first started encountering that, I'm like, oh, now that North Side's becoming gentrified, we got to come up with a, a fancy, you know, marketable name for it. Yeah, I will say this. Now that I think about it, I mean, I don't have a strong reaction to BIPOC. But it it does, I'm more comfortable when actual people from the Black, Indigenous, or people of color community use it as a shorthand than if I'm sitting, you know, with a bunch of white people and they're like, oh, we want a speaker from the BIPOC community. You know, I'm like, like well, you don't even, like, you don't even know who that is. You know? <laughs> and then I, I- I do respond though when when people are like you know as a as a POC and I'm like as a POC you know like I'm gonna be like as a black woman like uh-huh. when do we start like as a person of color and I mean I guess I have used that and then I check myself but I'm just like we're getting wrapped up in stuff and I just hope that we're doing the work underneath it which yeah. really matters and the language you know language is always important to me uh-huh. but. I don't know. There's just, <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go with that one, but um, I guess I have to, I have to wrap. I could literally talk all day, but you know, there's so much heaviness. And one of our values uh, at the Minneapolis foundation is that hope is essential. And I, I'm curious on, on what you're feeling most hopeful about right now. What I am feeling most hopeful about is, so one of the, probably the central issue for indigenous people in Minnesota right now, I should say one of the most immediate issues is um, trying to stop Enbridge Line 3 pipeline up in Northern Minnesota. What I am most hopeful about is, is the level of strong indigenous women leadership in this. I'm more hopeful about that than I am actually in stopping the pipeline, right? I, I hope the pipeline is stopped. I, I hope that we don't have to fight these fights again and the violation of indigenous sovereignty. Um, but I just, I feel that some of the greatest leadership on this issue is indigenous women, Winona LaDuke, Tara Hauska, and a whole host of others. And there is a certain swell of hope and pride, uh, whether I'm on social media or watching news coverage, you know, seeing Winona or Tara or, or, or others, um, 
with the bullhorn, you know, standing on the front lines. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about that. And also what I'm hopeful about was giving me hope is the number of white people that are stepping up to this fight and saying, okay, we know that people are getting arrested and it should be white people that are putting their bodies in jeopardy and getting arrested before it's native people. And um, so the willingness for white people to step up to this and, and pay the price. And um, I hope that is a continuing trend that, that spreads through communities, um, through black community. You know, We saw it a little, we saw it some in the wake of George Floyd, You know, um, white allies actually doing more than just talking. And uh, I hope as we move into the trial period that that continues. Yeah, I think it will. And I mean, white, yeah. white allyship is, has, has always been the case. There's been a lot of other things, but I think about the civil rights movement and the white allies that were very instrumental during that time. And I think that when you think about allyship, sometimes we also simplify that. And um, the allies that, that step into the danger zone with us, I think is what we're talking about, right? To really, to really put some things at risk. Yeah. Is, is what, we're, what we're talking about. Yeah. I forget who said it, but it was, it was uh, I remember someone saying it, saying, um, I don't need white allies. I need white accomplices that are gonna come in and, um, and disturb things with me. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your work. I know that we'll be working together on um, the truth and, and reparations uh, work. I'm really looking forward uh, to that. I'm glad you guys are stepping into that leadership. It's such an important time for that. Um, we are, the Minneapolis Foundation is doing our best, right, to, mm -hmm. to look at, at our history, our approach, where we can be smarter and more proximate where we can be in partnership and and try to better recognize our power and privilege and use that in a way that promotes and amplifies the voices of community and their work and i'm really proud to be in this moment of transformation um and leading that at the foundation so you know, more to come. I'll be thinking of you during the during the trial, and hopefully, you're thinking of me. And if there's anything that that we can do, either personally or organizationally, please let me know. Oh, absolutely appreciate this. Thank you. That's Jim Bear Jacobs and our host Shonda Smith Baker. If you like what you hear, please follow us on wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Sue Pak-Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.